0: you're listening to a Clovis Hills podcast, you're about to hear from one of our teaching pastors. I want to encourage you, go download the Clovis Hills app where you can listen to sermons, you can give, you can do the growth group questions. They're on there too. And you can study God's word together. God bless you guys and go be the church. Well, good morning, Clovis Hills, especially you online campus. My name is Pastor Steve Davidson. I'm the founding pastor here, though right now I'm only part, part-time. I'm hanging around uh, next year will be 30 years of my investment here at this church and it's exciting I, I before I get started in my message today I just got to bless the current staff who are just exhibiting such tremendous faith in God and God's people and also uh, just generosity of, of being out there trying to serve others I don't know how many of you know about this but First of all, we have this COVID thing going on, you know, and, and kids are supposed to be learning. So we have COVID. A, you can't go to church, so I don't know how you do church without church. That's kind of weird to me. And then uh, the governor tells us we're going to have school, but you can't go to school. So that, and that's, we're getting really weird now. So when school started, we had parents coming to us saying, I really need to go to work so I can pay the bills. I don't know what I'm going to do with my kids. We can't stay home. So our staff heard the call, and volunteered our church to watch their kids, some of the kids whose parents have to go to work. And I think they're watching somewhere between 70 and 90 children on our two campuses. And and here's here's the crazy thing about it. I know a lot of people think churches just have lots of money, a gazillion people. But here's the thing. Churches only work based on volunteers, which means a volunteer can tell you, I don't want to do it, and you can't do anything about it. So our staff stepped out in faith and volunteered our people without asking him, hoping and trusting that God would move in their hearts and that we would meet the need, which, which you did. So that's been going on. Now, if you can imagine, that's chaos, that's chaos. Can you imagine having 70 to 90 kids? Now all we're providing is a safe place. They're still, they're still studying online, we're providing uh, care for and kinda, you know, 10 kids to a room and so forth, but it, th- that's crazy. And then on top of that, uh, you know, we decided we'd burn the state of California to the ground. And, and, and then some, they, they came to us because we're right at the base of the foothills and said, would you be a distribution center for uh, goods and services uh, to help the evacuees that are pouring down from the mountains? And uh, our, our, again, our staff, I, I don't think I would have had the faith to be, <laughs> I just don't know what to think. They said yes again, and I'm sure they didn't know what they had said yes to, because literally tons of food and clothing and water and, all, and parking for all the RVs of our vacuees coming down the, And again, who's, who's handling all that? Volunteers. Now, we're kind of a Baptist church, and I don't know if you know much about Baptists, but you can't tell a Baptist to do anything and yet voluntarily they are stepping up and meeting the needs. It looks like when I drove up this morning, I just had to smile real big. We look like a third world country here on our campus, but we are proud to be serving. It's just such a great thing. And our staff whose faith allows us to go like that, it, it's just tremendous. So I, I really, uh, I just wanna give them a, a heads up, a, a kudos really. Now, we're in the book of First Peter. 1 Peter's probably transcendent theme is that since you've been saved, you ought to live for God based on your calling from heaven, not based on your circumstances. In fact, the theme we'll get into and see throughout the rest of the book is that even in trials and tribulation and suffering... We're supposed to still be the church. We're still, still to be the witnesses of Christ and what he has done in the world. And the passage I'm going to handle today is the third in this series on Be Different. And uh, I'm going to get right into it. I want to read at least a portion of the scriptures that you would find in your notes. If you, had a, if you have the Clovis Hills app, look under, the, under media and you'll see find the notes we're going to go to. Let me just read about the first four or five verses. It says, therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, God is holy. So be holy in all you do for it is written and this is a quote from Leviticus all the way back uh, to Moses God says be holy because I am holy Now this brings us to my first point in this passage I had to look at this for a long time this passage but I'm I'm convinced this is the heart and call and the driving force of the whole passage and that is that Christians should be different God's people should be different. And the Bible word for this is holy. Now, uh, I'm going to r- just read one of the uh, commentaries that we're using is William Barclays. And he says that the word for holy in Greek is hagias, whose root meaning is different. In other words, the temple is holy or hagias because it's different from other buildings. It's used to, to honor God and to glorify God, to, to worship God. That the Sabbath is holy, or hagios, because it is different from other days. It's set apart as a day of rest and a day of worship. And the Christian is holy, or hagios, because he is different from other men. God has forgiven his sins, placed the Holy Spirit in his life, and called him to become a child of God and to live at a holier and a higher standard. Now, we're to be different, but let me just... Why are we using the word different instead of holy? And, and I think that's, a, that's an interesting question because the Bible says we're to be holy. I, I gave you the translation, the modern idea of uh, it means different underneath. But here's the problem. Uh, I'm 70 years old when I was going to uh, Sunday school about 55 years ago or something like that. Uh, the churches often would preach to the congregations that they need to be, we as a God's people need to live holy lives. But somehow that teaching kind of got, went sideways. And let me tell you what I think it was all about. Uh, Churches back then were teaching the thou shalt nots heavily. And so when we taught that you should be holy, They would teach us all the things we shouldn't do that we're going to be better. You know, by not doing them, we would be sort of better than or holier than the the culture around us. The problem is when you make holiness a bunch of thou shalt nots, we begin to unintentionally radiate a spirit of, um, of holier than thou. And so when the culture at large began to say to us Christians, well, you just got kind of to have a holier-than-thou attitude. I feel judged around you. And frankly, we were better at judging other people than we were at just being different in a way that uh, shined the light of God's glory out to everybody else. And so we come now 50 years later beyond that. Almost no one is really teaching to be holy because holiness has now come to be affiliated with judgmentalism and, and not totally wrong. That's, there, there, there's reasons for why that, that's a valid, valid judgment. So here's my questions that I want to try to address today. If we're called to be holy, what is the goal? What, what should we be aiming? What kind of difference? Should a holy life or a a different life as God wants it to be different, what should it look like? And I think the answers are found in the passage that we're going to look at today. And then the other question is, if I'm actually trying to be holy, how am I going to do that without coming across as, as haughty or prideful? or better than everybody else. And th- that's a problem. And I think we've got to solve both issues. What is the picture of holiness? Now to do that, as I looked at this passage, I saw in this passage all three phases of God's salvation referred to. And so I want to give kind of a brief idea, an overview. of it's kind of a theological point, but I'm gonna use simpler words and not big words to try to help you understand how the Christian life works. God's salvation has three distinct phases, and they have different kind of elements to them. There is, uh, first of all, a beginning point. If you are saved, there has to be a beginning point, a point at which you receive Christ. You see, when we come into this world, we're not a Christian necessarily. Uh, Just like if you uh, walked into your garage, it doesn't make you a Ford or a Chevy. just being born in a Christian home doesn 't make you a Christian. you can't get in on your grandmother's coattails. You actually have to decide that you are open to and willing to receive Christ. You see that the beginning point of salvation is that Jesus died to pay for your sins, past, present, and future, and he is a avail- and, and the consequence of us living in our sin is that it separates us from God and so When you're first born, there's no intimacy with God. And when you receive Christ, he is willing to forgive your sins, and he's willing to place his spirit in your life to make you a child of God. It's a beautiful thing, but it has a beginning point. If you've never accepted Christ, I just so would challenge you to pray about that. Think about that, even as I go through the rest of this message. So it has to have a beginning point. And then it has an end point as well, the final element of of our salvation, uh, I call it uh, the final fulfillment, is the second coming of Christ. When Christ comes again, he's going to take sin out of this world completely. There will be a judgment day, there will be a separation of sheep and goats, and those who have been forgiven of their sins will have the new bodies, uh, resurrected bodies given to us, and in those resurrected bodies, all of the memory of sin and its temptations will be gone. We won't have to work so hard against temptation because it won't be around anymore. What a beautiful thing. But in the middle of this, there, there's a beginning and there's an ending when Christ comes again. But in the rest of your life, from the time you accept Christ until you die or Christ comes, is the, it, it's kind of, well, I called it this. It's an ongoing process. Because we don't know how many years that is. And in that time frame, you are to grow in Christ to become more like Christ to the people around you. You, you should be a small, that's what Christian means, a small Christ, a positive, love-displaying uh, member of Christ's family that makes this a better world to live in. Now it's in that phase, this middle phase, sometimes called sanctification, that we're called to be holy. So this brings me to to the point I wanted to get across. So what kind of difference do you think we should grow into? What what would holiness look like in today's world that doesn't have a holier than thou attitude? If we're not just trying to not sin, then what is it that we're to grow into? And I think this passage gives us a very, very good uh, answer to that. So my next point would be this. I just try to answer this question. In what ways are Christians to be different or holy? And there's two things I found in this passage, and I think the pattern of these two things held together could be found in almost every book of the New Testament. First of all, Christians should be growing in love. That's the main thing God wants for us. He loves us, and he wants us to absorb his love, and he wants us to love our neighbor as ourselves and make this a better world. We ought to be growing in love, and look what I, I, here's where I found it in this passage. Uh, Peter says, now that you have purified yourselves, in other words, now that you become Christians, now that you've accepted Christ and his death on the cross has purified you of your sin, he's forgiven you of your sin. Now that you purified yourselves, love one another deeply from the heart. That's what we're to grow in. Now, if we understood that that's the goal. I'm I'm to grow in my love for God. I'm to grow in my love for other people. I should be loving my family better. I should be loving all members of our society, even loving, as God does, those people who are far away from God with the hope that maybe they too could accept Christ in some day. Now, that's a goal worthy of pursuing. Now, here's the problem. When I first got saved, I thought I knew what love was. And then when I first got married, just a few years after that, I really thought I knew what love was. And then we had our first child about five years after that, and I realized that loving both Shirley and this kid and the stuff I want to do started colliding with one another. Do you know what I'm saying? Uh, Let me say it this way. Marriage was the most unselfing thing I had done up to that point. So I had really, I had no idea what love was because it was all about me. But even in marriage, though it required me to be a little less selfish, when we had a child and Shirley started giving some of her attention to the baby instead of to me, I found out I didn't like it. And when I didn't like it, I started being mean or argumentative or pointing out all of her faults because I wanted her to pay attention to me. And I found that that doesn't work in a marriage. So I discovered in year five of my marriage that I really didn't know much about love yet, where I had to take more of myself aside to give all that I had to my wife and to my child and to my church and to my job. And that's how it goes in life. We should be growing in love for the rest of our life. If we did that, instead of just focusing on the sins I'm trying to get rid of, because truthfully, I I want you to be less sinful and so does everybody else around you, but that's not a very good goal. It's like having a batter up at bat. And his, his mindset is don't miss the ball. Don't strike out. That's the clearest way to strike out. You should be focused on what you ought to do and want to do rather than what you don't want to do. And what God wants us to do in being holy is to grow in love more like Christ That's a goal that would make this a better world. Now, having said that, there's a flip side to that that helps that happen. And here's what I found in in this passage. Christians should get rid of all malice and deceit. And that's taken right from the passage. Let me read you the passage. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Now, do you know what malice is? Malice is a form of anger. In fact, it's the mildest form of anger. It's like, I don't like that person. So all malice would include rage. It would include hate. It would include aggressive, uh, you know, put down behavior of others rather than really loving them. It's the opposite of. He says, get rid of that and get rid of deceiving others with your secret agendas to manipulate them to get them to do what you want. So another way to say it would be this we 've got to get rid of the negative uh, emotions that come out of us because that 's the opposite of the love that God wants to shine through us. So put those two together. I want you to grow in love and diminish in negativity and hatred or malice and deceitfulness. Wow. Now that would now just think with me. wouldn't that make for a better world? What if we all diminished our negativity? Well, for one thing, you'd have to get on Instagram a whole lot less. Huh. I mean, what is Instagram? Well, I hate you too. Yeah, but I'm smarter than you. Yeah, but my guy's bigger than you. It's just like, it, and it feeds on itself. Anger, anger. Did you know that when somebody is angry, we're, in the moment of anger, we're very self-righteous. And we think that we're casting our self-righteous on them to get them to bow down. But all anger does is rise up self-righteous anger in the other person, and it just feeds on each other. And what Christ wants us to grow in, in holiness, is more love, less anger. Let me just say it one last way. When I have anger in my heart, even towards uh, my wife, it clouds my ability to love her because I can't see her needs. I'm only focused on how I think I've been wounded or I've been hurt. Now, in our world, America today, is, is just about overrun with malice and anger and divisiveness. Christians are to be holy, different than. We're to be the healers in this society and the ones that grow less angry. Now, how can you be less angry with all these things going wrong? You trust in the sovereignty of God. You realize you can't fix everybody and being angry at them won't turn them as much as loving them and being patient and kind with them. But that's just, I just want to get clear. Growing in holiness, being holy has the idea of growing more loving, less negative, not just I'm overcoming some sins and then I'm going to make you feel uh, kind of guilty because you're not overcoming the sins I'm overcoming. So then the question would be, if that's the picture of holiness that God wants to call us to, how can I grow holy without becoming haughty? And there's two things I found in this passage. One, you have to develop a craving for God's word. I haven't found anything like the Bible for getting me to focus away from all the problems I have and helping me to focus on the goodness of God that is available to me if I'll just take advantage of it. What a, what a beautiful thing. Look what the Bible says here. This is uh, 1 Peter 2, verse 2. Desire God's pure word as newborn babies desire milk. Then you will grow in your salvation. If we will cultivate a desire, a hunger, a craving for God's word and to be in it, it will counteract the society's influence of negativity that's all around us. And folks, we need this. Uh, We need this more than you can possibly know staying in the Word of God and keeping some, some way of overcoming the negative of this world is a critical factor. And when you do that, you don't feel like you've overcome the world, but you're not quite as tainted by the world. So you don't become haughty, but you actually survive. And then the other part is this. Root your life in the grace of God. Root your life in the grace of God. Here's what the Bible says in this. This is uh, 1 Peter 1.13. Set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. Did you know that there's grace when you're saved initially? There's grace while you're living in this life, but there's also grace to come when Jesus comes back. I don't know if you've thought about this. There, there's so many beautiful things that God to. When, when Jesus comes, what are the things that are going to happen? Well, there's going to be a judgment, a separation. All of our sins are going to be exposed one of the great grace gifts that, that Christians have is rather than having my sins exposed to everybody, Jesus is going to stand up and say, he gets in because of me. And I will be changed for, a lot, for the rest of my eternity based on the grace of God to be revealed to me when Jesus comes back. There's a beautiful thing coming. So here, here's the key to grace. You can never earn grace. It's given as a gift. You can only receive it with the empty hands of faith. It's a beautiful thing. Let me give you another verse from another place in the Bible that sort of keys off of this same idea of grace. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 10, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Now here's a man who has sought to live for Christ for many years. And he said, his grace toward me was not without effect. In other words, I didn't just take his grace for granted. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. This is so wonderful. Paul says, I have become something for Christ by the grace of God. But I don't want you to think I just took it for granted. No, 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 no. I worked harder than a lot of those other apostles. And yet even that I now recognize was God's grace working in me to work harder. When we started this church uh, almost 30 years ago now, we sort of developed a way of thinking about how we were gonna go about it. First of all, we didn't have any resources, we didn't have any buildings, we didn't have any people. So we decided that it was all up to God or it wasn't gonna work. So we prayed as if everything depended on God. And then the small little cadre of people that were helping me in, in the start we also decided that that was not an excuse to just take it all for granted. So we strategized as best we could. We planned as best we could. And we executed our plans to the best of our ability as if it all depended on us. You say, well, which was it? it, Were you depending on God in prayer or were you depending on your hard work? And I would say, yes, that's right. That's what we did. See, it's both. That's what Paul is saying. If you'd have said to Paul, what well, was it because you worked harder or because you had the grace of God? He would have said, yeah, yeah, that's it. You got it. That's how grace works. When you surrender to live before God, all loving and less negative, and you do it to the best of your ability, not only do, do you, you know, create something better than ever would be, but God's grace takes it to a higher place. Uh, one of the things as I've looked back over the years uh, for a while there, you know, we, we had so much wonderful success by the grace of God in the early days that uh, you're tempted to think if you're the pastor, you know, I must really be something. I, I must really have this going on. But the older I've got and the more distant from, you know, Sean's been running this church for, I don't know, seven, eight years now. The, the older I've got, the more I look back and I realize that what, why God chose me to start this church is because he wanted to show what he could do with a man with very little going for him. But you don't have to have a lot going for you, but when you fully surrender to God, he can do enormous things. So living holy requires your best. And this is part of what I I, I guess I want to get across. It's really, it's so deep in me, I probably can't express it. I see Christians who say, I was saved by grace, so I'm just going to wait till I... I die and get to see Jesus and I just think no we should not allow the fact that we can't live a perfect life to be an excuse for living a lazy life spiritually if God has sent his son to die for us we owe him the rest of our life and not that you're going to give it perfectly and you're never going to be as all loving as you'd like to be and there's even days when you'll have to admit that you're less than But God will always use our fully surrendered life. And he'll add grace to it. And you'll get further than ever you thought you could. And then one last verse I want to give you on grace. And it's this. It is in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved. And it is through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works. You're not saved by how good you are. You're not saved by your work so that you've earned it. And why are you not saved by works? So that no one can boast. Now, boast, when it says you're saved by grace so that no one can boast, it ought to be a clue that when you and I are bragging on how good we are, we're missing the point. We're missing the point. That's the very thing we can't do. You say, well, I want to feel good about something. Can't I brag about something? I have an idea. Here's what Paul says in, I think it's 1 Corinthians 12. Maybe 2 Corinthians 12. He says, I decided that I would boast or brag about my weaknesses that the power of Christ might be revealed through me. If you want to know how to be holy, start bragging about how good you're not and how good God is. You see, God wants him to receive the glory because you and I can't take it because our egos will just expand and bloat. For one thing, wouldn't it be horrible if you could actually get into heaven based on how good you are? Now think about, it. we're going around heaven and this guy comes up with you know, his chest all out. He says, how'd you guys get here? And I said, by the grace of God, I just barely got in. And he says, not me. It sucks to be you. I was good enough. Could you imagine having have to put up with that guy for eternity? Our kids, we set out when we started having kids to be the best parents God had ever put on the planet. And we worked at it and prayed at it. And then our kids fell apart anyway. We had, they had a tough time from about late teens all the way through their 20s. Our kids, were, it would, they were a mess. Now, let me just tell you, what, at the time I was heartbroken by it all. I look back to it now and I think, thank God, because I would have been insufferable If while trying to be a perfect parent, I had succeeded, I would have been telling all of you, I know how to do it. If you just do it my way, we'd have, and don't you hate people like that? So God, by his grace, allowed us to be humbled so that we could recognize that when he brings our kids back to himself, it's not of us, it's by his grace. Now, if you have never accepted the grace of God, let me just ask you, Wouldn't you like to grow in love? Well, you need to know, you need to get to know Christ who exhibited the ultimate method of loving by dying for us. The the most unselfing creature that's ever walked the planet. And wouldn't you like to get to know God who is love? You have to invite him in. He's just waiting. He will help you love and he will begin to take some of this negativity out, but he needs and he wants your cooperation. One of the things about God is that he is a gentleman and he does not intend to run roughshod over your will. He invites you and offers the, all of eternity and all the grace of God to you, but you have to receive it humbly by faith. And Christ has done the heavy lifting. If you would like to receive Christ or you sense in your heart that call of the Holy Spirit, I want to live better, you need a power source like the Holy Spirit in the inside of your life. And to get that, you need the forgiveness of God that's offered through Christ. So I want to invite you to pray with me right now. If you've never done that, this is your chance. Father, I want to thank you so much for your word. I thank you for the challenges and the hope for a better life. That Not that we'll ever be perfect, but we can be dramatically better than we have been, and we can end our life on a dramatically higher note than we have lived to this far, to this point. And Father, if there's anybody here who's never accepted you, would you just pray this prayer, Lord? Uh, Not Lord, I want you to pray to the Lord. Dear Heavenly Father, I want you in my life. I need you in my life. And I acknowledge that my sins have separated me from really having you having full access to my life. And so, Lord, I confess that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. And Jesus, I open my heart as best I know how, and I invite you to come into my life right now. Forgive me of my sins and give me a relationship with your Heavenly Father and place your Holy Spirit within me to give me a power source for changing so that I might live a holy life, maybe imperfectly at first, but increasingly gloriously loving over time. And Father, I thank you that for those who prayed that prayer, that you hear their hearts cry and that you have responded to them even in the moment. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.